0: I am Dr. David Schiffman. I am a marine conservation biologist who studies sharks and how to protect them. I live and work in Washington, D.C. I met Mark last year as part of a 50-city international book tour when I visited Victoria, and that was for uh, my book, Why Sharks Matter, A Deep Dive with the World's Most Misunderstood Predator. And a New Year's wish for sharks. I hope that recent uh, changes to the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species for sharks work as swimmingly as, I, as it seems like they are so far. Happy to expand on that later. <laughs>
1: The biggest thing I learned about sharks when I was writing my book Sharks Forever? Almost everything most people know about sharks is wrong. If you swim in the ocean every day for a hundred years, you are more likely to be struck by lightning than swallowed by a shark. It is riskier to swim with another human being than with a shark. Humans aren't just more likely to drown you, they are more likely to bite you. Heck, you are almost as likely to be hit by a sharknado as attacked by a shark. And sharknados don't exist. Hi, I'm Mark Lernian, and welcome to Scanna, a podcast for fans of fact-based reality and reality-based facts. And today, we are talking shark facts with the scientists who celebrate Shark Week by calling out their fake news about one of the most awesome species on Earth, scientist and author of Why Sharks Matter, David Schiffman. I was lucky enough to meet David when he was giving a talk at the Royal BC Museum about a year ago, and I loved his approach to myth-busting and taking on misinformation in its native habitat, social media. Now, we've been looking to line up this interview ever since then, and I hope it's the first of many, because for this one, we just focused on one thing, his fight for facts. Yep, we talked all about shark myths. Now, if you'd like to help us fight to share more facts about life in the oceans, see what I did there? We call that a segue. Please join our pod at patreon.com or subscribe to our Substack newsletter, which features bonus content about all the aquatic animals and issues we cover. This is the place to find out what's happening in the water. So subscribe to Substack, a paid subscription, even better. Your support helps us pay for the tech and the humans required to make this happen. And the more support we get, more stories we can share. You can also help us out by buying my books about sharks and whales for younger readers, and my books for older readers. One of them, The Killer Whale Who Changed the World, is a serious book. My book, Never Shoot a Stampede Queen, less serious, won Canada's Leacock Medal for Humor, and is 100% orca-free. Both of these books, and Orcas Everywhere, are available as audiobooks recorded by me. So please, share our episodes, our Substack newsletter, and our social media. And now, Let's talk about the impact of Sharknado, the legacy of Jaws, and why Shark Week bites with David Schiffman. Thank you so so much for doing this. It has taken way too long to line this up. There's a question that I really wanted to kick off with because I'm kind of obsessed with this. And this is clearly, you're clearly the person to ask, how in the world does a movie that came out in 1978 that is not on TV every year, like celebrated the way say It's a Wonderful Life is completely define the way the world sees sharks like how in the world did jaws have the impact that it has yes
0: yeah, so jaws has had a really transformative impact for sharks mostly bad though a, a lot of my colleagues that are sort of half a generation ahead of me say yeah. that they were inspired to become marine biologists because of the hooper character in jaws i actually just a few weeks ago totally coincidentally met richard dreyfus um, In a hotel lobby in Lexington, Kentucky, and he pointed at me because I was wearing a shirt with a shark on it, and I talked to him about how my real job is what you got famous for playing fictionally. But yeah, that part of it is because the movie is just so good. Like a lot of movies don't hold, from that era don't hold up, or they're watched in film school or by cinemaphiles, but otherwise they're unwatchably bad. And Jaws is still a good movie. I recently rewatched it before I went to go see The Shark Is Broken on Broadway, which is a, a story about the making of Jaws. And yeah, it's it's really changed the world. Before Jaws came out, most people didn't really think about sharks at all. There was a funny article in The Onion recently that said scientists blame Jaws for changing perception of sharks from cuddly adorable Of creatures to bloodthirsty monsters, and that's there. I I laughed when I saw it. But the truth is, most people really didn't think about sharks very much before Jaws came out at all. They would go to the beach and not think about what lay beyond the water's edge. And Jaws changed that. And it's still to this day when you ask people to think about a shark, many of them think of the shark in Jaws, even though that's not how they act. Another example of this is if you ask someone to think of a T-Rex, they'll think of the T-Rex. In Jurassic Park, even though we know that's not what they look like or how they behave, and that was also true at the time the movie came out. So Spielberg has a lot to answer for here, uh, but but um, Peter Benchley, the author of Jaws, spent much of the, the lighter parts of his life raising money and awareness for shark conservation, and there's now a shark species named after him to honor that.
1: Yeah, I'm just I'm always fascinated by how pop culture impacts the real world, right and the fact that there is something called the Jaws effect.
0: Isn't that mind-boggling? So the Jaws effect comes from the public policy literature, and it refers to how fictional portrayals of a real-world issue can affect how people really think about that issue in reality. And another way another way this comes up is with the, the politics surrounding Ebola a few years ago um, during the Obama presidency a lot of the freak out about that was blamed on the movie Outbreak. Because um, Ebola, it's its extremely unpleasant. You don't want to get it, but it's not how it was portrayed in Outbreak. In um, the original book that that was based on, they didn't even call it Ebola. They changed it for the movie. So, yeah, people learn about the world through a lot of different ways, and we're a storytelling species. And we're, in some cases, not wired to tell the difference between this is not real and this is
1: news. Yeah, that strikes me as one of the bigger problems in the world right now.
0: It's not boring, I'll tell you that.
1: Now, can you talk about seeing the shark? The shark is broken. I saw some of your posts about that on social media, and this looked like I, I can't imagine a better play for you to ever see on Broadway. Oh, so.
0: it was absolutely fantastic. So this is the story of behind-the-scenes drama in the making of Jaws. So it's three actors playing young Roy Scheider, young Ian Shaw. Uh, and young Richard Dreyfus and the person playing Robert Shaw's son or or the the person playing Robert Shaw is in real life Robert Shaw's son who also wrote the play he found his father's journals and wrote the play based on that and it was very very well acted one of the people was Alex Brightman who is a, a, a Tony nominee uh, it was this the set was really fun because it was just the orca, the boat that's in the second half of Jaws. Uh, but they used some of the real set pieces from the actual movie. Uh, there were all sorts of fun things to pose and take your pictures with around the theater. And I it always amuses me when I go to the theater, but it's something like sticky like this, um, how people dress for it. So there there were people dressed like they were going to a show on Broadway and there were people dressed like they were going to a Jaws fan expo and sitting right next to each other. And it was just just a lovely, uh, a lovely evening.
1: Wow. Did you get to meet anybody? I don't think you did for your post.
0: Didn't get to meet anybody, but uh, they did. The producers did give me the tickets. So that was nice.
1: That's pretty cool. What was Richard Dreyfus? I, I... Got to interview Richard Dreyfuss a few years ago and found him just phenomenally charming. He was,
0: incre- he was unbelievably charming, just totally nice and normal and kind. He, we talked for like 10 minutes. He, he had just gotten off a plane and was checking into the hotel. He had an early morning the next day, and he wanted to talk to the person wearing the shark shirt in the lobby. Uh, could not have been more kind.
1: And you actually look kind of like him.
0: Yeah, the beard. The beard uh, is definitely. Uh, you don't have to have a beard to succeed in shark science, but it helps.
1: One of the things that I saw, like when I started interviewing people about orcas, the number of scientists—the same way you're talking about the number of scientists who went into sharks because of Jaws—the number yeah. of orca scientists who are there because they saw Free Willy is mind blowing, right? Like. It's not quite the only origin story,
0: but it's a common one for sure.
1: Oh yeah, I like. I was thinking. I went into a, a classroom. I was doing a talk on uh, whales and octopus, and I saw a little kid wearing a Josh shirt. And I'm going, "Have you even seen the movie?" So very cool. I saw that you gave a talk. I think you. I think you called the talk Sharknado Impact.
0: Uh so I gave a academic lecture that has since been turned into a public talk on the cultural legacy of the Sharknado franchise, which just turned 10 years old this year. And yeah, I, I love those goofy, bad shark movies. And I've been quoted in say, as saying there are lots of shark movies. There are two kinds of shark movies. There are bad shark movies and there's Jaws. So anything that's not Jaws is a bad shark movie. <laughs> but there are different tiers of bad shark movie with deep blue sea and and the reef and the shallows, things like that sort of being better bad shark movies, but Sharknado does not, there was a very silly debate a few years ago about whether Marvel movies are movies or films and do they count as cinema? And I I find that artistic hoity-toity nonsense, but uh, no one would argue that Sharknado is cinema. Sharknado are movies. And there are six of them and just everyone knows what it is. It's unbelievable. Even people who haven't seen it, if you say Sharknado, no one will say, what's that? the way that they would if you talk about any of these other Saturday, Saturday Night Creature Features on the Sci-Fi Channel. And yeah, I've gave a I've given a lecture on the cultural legacy of the Sharknado franchise. I should note, as an academic, my conflict of interest here, that Sharknado 2, the second one, yes, it's called that, is uh, thanked in my PhD dissertation because they funded one of my PhD projects.
1: That's hilarious. Now, what do you feel the impact and legacy of Sharknado was? And what in the world did Sharknado fund?
0: Yeah, they funded uh, some of my lab processing fees. So I had already been a longtime fan of the production company that makes the Sharknado movies. And I had written to them, honest to God, fan mail. And I said, I'm a, I'm a professional marine biologist who studies sharks. I like these movies. I just wanted you to know that, you know, people who really work in this field enjoy these movies i i'd written them that after mega shark versus giant octopus uh which is another classic in the genre and after sharknado came out they wrote to me and they said hey are you still working in this field we made a lot more money than we expected to from sharknado we want to give some back to sharks can you recommend some shark science and conservation charities and i did and they donated a bunch of money to a bunch of shark science and conservation charities, and then they gave me money to fund some of my research as a thank you.
1: That is amazing. Now, in your Sharknado Impact State, what do you think the impact of Sharknado was on the rest of the world?
0: Yeah, it's it's mostly just been that everyone knows what it is. Like There's a magic the gathering card that's Sharknado. There was an Archie vs. the Sharknado comic book. In, in Deadpool 2, when the, he learns that Cable comes back from the future, he asks him, what Sharknado movie are we on? There's just a, a, a resonance, and it's, it's just everywhere. It also shows up in my world here in Washington, D.C. It's used by both sides in political arguments. Republican Senator Mike Lee repeatedly mentions Sharknado when he's talking about how he opposes climate change legislation. It's just friggin' weird how much this goofy Saturday night basic cable movie has ex- escaped its cage and entered the cultural zeitgeist.
1: Please tell me the guy opposing, the guy mentioning Sharknado doesn't think they're really going to happen.
0: I wish I could tell you that for sure, Mark, uh, but I, nothing with Mike Lee would surprise me, if I'm being honest. Here's a crazy story for you. So one of the things that's, that's really fun about the Sharknado movies is all the celebrity cameos. And it's usually like pretty BNC list celebrities, but it's people that you recognize. And after Sharknado 2 had all these cameos, apparently their, the Asylum, the company that makes this, their phones were ringing off the hook with people who wanted to be in the movie. And they reached out to someone to play the president because the next one was taking place in Washington, D.C. And he sort of dithered. And in the meantime, they offered it to Mark Cuban, who, who played the president in Sharknado 3. Oh, hell no. Yes, it's called that. Then the first guy reached back out and said, you know what? I would like to be the president. And they said, I'm sorry, we gave the role to Mark Cuban, but the role of vice president is available. And the guy flew into a rage on the phone. How dare you make me fictional vice president, all of that. And a few weeks later, Donald Trump announced that he was running for president for real. And I am not saying that a casting dispute over a Saturday night of horror, horror movie is what led to Donald Trump running for president. But honestly, nothing would surprise me about that either.
1: Wow. I love that even more than the idea that it was the White House Correspondents Dinner. Because yep. that's, wow. Okay, that is awesome and epic. Any other impacts that come to mind for either Jaws or Sharknado? Because I'm, I'm actually thinking I should share this part of our conversation with the class that I teach. I, I teach a class at EVIC where I look at the sort of way Marvel and DC films impact pop culture and real culture influences those films. And I feel like this is yeah such a phenomenal example of how pop culture influences the real world.
0: It's just you'll find references to it everywhere, and it's it's truly stunning because there are a lot of those movies. There's literally one every week, and I bet most of you would be hard pressed to name two others. And everyone knows what Sharknado is.
1: Awesome. Now. You pretty much rule social media over during Shark Week. Uh, And I I feel like most of what you do during Shark Week is myth-busting. Is Shark Week your official nemesis? Oh, I
0: don't... I, I think I'd have to care more about them for them to be a nemesis. Several media outlets have called me Shark Week's number one critic. I don't know if that's true, but certainly I'm very critical of the dumpster fire of nonsense and lies that they show every year. And... It's really just a huge miss opportunity more. So this is something that's been measured that that Shark Week represents the greatest temporary increase versus baseline of Americans paying attention to any science or conservation issue during a year. It's not the most they pay attention, but it's the greatest increase from baseline. And there's no episodes about conservation, but we have room for not one, but two episodes where the guys from Jackass explode bait balls next to them to see what the sharks do. We have room for not one, but two specials where the, of naked and afraid of sharks, whereas my poor mother, who volunteered to watch this with me, said, so let me get this straight. These contestants get a mask, fins, and snorkel, but they don't get a bathing suit. We have room for two of those, but nothing about overfishing, nothing about bycatch, nothing about con- any, any meaningful conservation. In fact, we recently did a content and discourse analysis of all of Shark Week ever. We had two poor undergraduate volunteers who watched 206 episodes. And we found that in 206 episodes, there were just six specific asks that they made of their audience of millions. And four of those were don't eat shark fin soup, which Western audiences pretty much already are not. It is just an enormous missed opportunity. I could rant about how, how bad Shark Week is at a lot of other things forever. Yeah, Shark Week and I are not besties.
1: <laughs> I think my favorite stat from that massive Shark Week research you did is that Shark Week is very kind, however, to dudes named Mike.
0: Yes. Is it, so this was unbelievable. So we found among people featured in more than one Shark Week show, so what you would call the stars, there are not only more men than women, even though my field is 60% women, there are more men named Mike than there are women. And that's unbelievable. But my fav- one of my favorite things that has ever happened is uh, Mike Rowe, the host of Dirty Jobs with Mike Rowe, held up a Washington Post uh, with that newspaper headline, looking sad. And it was fantastic. That was my Facebook profile picture for three months.
1: Wow. So is Shark Week just allergic to actual shark science? And... What's really
0: upsetting to me about it is there's so many real stories that they could tell that are more interesting than these. It's not, I'm not saying that all educational television needs to be a dry, stuffy, boring science lecture, but it should at least be true. and not obviously made up for sensationalism and causing harm to these animals. And so much of what they say is just boring. There's every year there's six or eight episodes where the same two jackasses ask a basic question about shark behavior that was answered before I was born. They don't talk to any scientists who would tell them that we've known that for 50 years. And instead they go cage diving in Mexico and then never address the question again. It's just boring.
1: I just don't get it. Seriously, go to Bimini and talk to people who are looking at lemon sharks and their friends, right? Like there are some really, really cool shark stories right now.
0: There's some really cool, and there's new ones every year. And I'm not saying that every shark science paper would make a great hour-long documentary, but certainly many of them would. And there are are species other than great white sharks. Another analysis that we did of how shark conservation is portrayed in the global English-speaking media found that great white sharks are mentioned in about 40% of studies or on forty percent of newspaper articles about shark conservation they're not the most endangered shark not by a long shot they're doing relatively okay and in some places are recovering but there were in almost two thousand popular press articles from around the world, there were only twenty six articles that mentioned a single critically endangered species but you'd be well informed with what's going on with gray whites, which are not the species that need their help need help the most. this is not to say it's bad to protect them, but you no, know, they've got all the they've got plenty of awareness.
1: I'm guessing that just just the sharks that are being snapped on by those two orcas in South Africa get more press than pretty much all the endangered species of sharks combined.
0: Yes, and I, so I actually do the, Oh, by far a lot more, definitely a lot more. A nice thing about doing this these sort of media content and discourse studies is a lot of scientists and a lot of experts like to complain about this stuff, but I can actually show you the numbers that your complaints are true, that it, like hard That's data. True. A deeply distressing stat for me. Do you remember a few years ago there was a story about some some uh, idiots in Florida caught a shark and they dragged it behind their boat at high speed and its skin sort of flayed off from being dragged. So horrible. Yeah. Those people are monsters. Yep. They they face justice and should have but that that was a non-endangered species it was not illegal to kill it it was just illegal to kill it that way and that story got more attention than all the rest of shark conservation news that year and is it is it bad that they did that yeah i think it is is it bad for shark populations no it's no it makes no impact on shark populations and it wrongly portrays the issue as being a few idiots being jerks and not you know, global industrial overfishing.
1: Yeah, in terms of that kind of math, I'd love to see the numbers on the amount of press that was received for Chokotai, Lolita, Miami aquarium, compared to the amount of press that has been received for the entire actual endangered population of her family.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, it's not even close. And so I, I don't know, I can't remember if I told you this when I met you in Victoria, but I, I did my PhD at the University of Miami, which shares a wall with Seaquarium, And the overflow student parking lot is the Sequarium parking lot. So I had to park there a lot. And I would walk by protesters on my way to work. And they were just screaming at me. And I just had to say, like, I'm not saying I disagree with you. I'm not saying I agree with you. It's not me. I just have to park there.
1: Wow. Yeah, I'm... I'm just fascinated by how, where the attention goes and whether there's any way to move the passion and the energy to saving the orcas who need it, saving the sharks who need it.
0: Yeah, if you figure that out, let me know. I'll I'll tell you, I found a lot of ways that don't work. Uh, That you cannot possibly say to someone, you're dumb and stupid for caring about this, you should care about this instead. That's never going to work. No one has ever changed their mind by being called stupid for caring about something. But you see it on, on online social media interactions from activists on all different issues every day. And one thing that does change minds is yes and. Oh, I see that you're concerned about this issue. or You're concerned about orcas. Of Can I interest you in learning about this wild population of orcas that's related to this? And, and you won't get everyone. Some people just like being angry about what's in the news or what will personally get them attention. Um, a big issue that you've seen me rant about on social media a lot is that a lot of people would rather found the like South Saanich Save the Sharks Club that does nothing so they can say they're the president versus being an anonymous volunteer with a group that actually does real work. Yeah, you see that the people, people are tricky and not everyone in ocean conservation world is actually trying to help.
1: There are so, so, so many more organizations devoted to saving the southern resident orcas than there are southern resident orcas that's wild right like it just uh, and i regularly get asked to join these new ones and i'm going
0: join yeah. the old ones
1: I, like they're join one of the ones that's doing phenomenal work they, these groups need help they're, these animals
0: yeah. need help but what they don't need is a new ngo founded by someone who doesn't know what they're doing and I when I, I run a consulting firm in Washington, D.C., and a, a thing I get asked to do a lot is help people set up their new nonprofits or, or a new nonprofit they want to start. And the first thing I ask them is, well, this is a very crowded space. So what are you doing that's different from what everyone else who's here is already doing? And a lot of people go, oh, I had no idea there were any other Save the Sharks groups out there. Like, okay, then you're not ready to start a nonprofit.
1: Well. Wow. When you're dealing with Shark Week, do they even make nods to how we're going to try and do something to help sharks?
0: Oh, they they lie all the time about this. Or they're either delusional or they lie. And they say, we're, sharks are alive because of us. We've raised awareness that sharks aren't deadly. And how they do that is they show an hour-long episode with like unbelievably gruesome reenactments and factually inaccurate statements about how the shark bites happened. And then at the end, over the closing credits... That if you watch it on, on HBO Max, it, it click, skips to the next episode. There's a 10-second statement that says sharks are actually not that dangerous. And they say that that's raising awareness of conservation. It's bananas.
1: It's just, I was floored when I was working on my shark book for kids. The, the math on how few sharks have actually hurt people ever.
0: Sure. So my, do, do you know the television show 24 with Kiefer Sutherland? He was a, a counterterrorism spy. Yeah, yeah. So when that show came back, they did a the, a sort of oh yeah of it. I uh, wrote a blog post for Southern Fried Science: Twenty-four species of sharks that have killed fewer people than Jack Bauer. And in fact, it was very difficult to write that because only uh, there aren't twenty-four species of sharks that have killed a human ever, and all of the species of sharks in the world combined have killed a lot fewer people than Jack Bauer has killed on screen, not even counting his off-screen exploits that we hear about. Some of my favorite statistics with this are more people are killed by cows than are killed by sharks. When I use that in my, my public talks, I can always tell who's never left the city because they always go, cows, really? Whereas anyone who spent time on a farm goes, yeah, cows are scary. More people are bitten by other people on the New York City subway system every year than are bitten by sharks in the whole world. More people die falling off cliffs while trying to take selfies of the scenery behind them than are killed by sharks. But whenever any shark gives someone side eye anywhere in the world, it's headline news everywhere in the world.
1: One of the things that fascinates me that we're finding out is that now that we've got better cameras, and I, I know that you've written about this and posted about this, we're now seeing just how little sharks care about us because we're seeing just how close they are to shore.
0: Yeah. So you see this uh, this bizarre genre of news story now that people go to the beach and a shark is near them and they didn't know it was there and the shark left them totally alone and they had a lovely time at the beach. Isn't that terrifying? And what's different here is now we have drone footage showing that the sharks are there and leaving us alone. They were there and leaving us alone before. The difference is now and you see these stories about sharks come very close to the shore they were, they were doing that before. What's different is now everyone at the beach has a GoPro or a drone or a smartphone. And another way of saying close to the shore is in the water where fish are supposed to be. If there's a shark walking down Main Street, give me a call, but seeing a shark swimming close to the beach is not news. That's where they're supposed to be. Yeah.
1: Now, uh, one of the things that you posted about that really cracked me up recently, can you talk about the fake goblin shark that you hit?
0: Oh my God. Yeah. This is... This is my favorite low-stakes science controversy that's ever happened. So in scientific literature, there's something called a range extension, and a range extension is just a short paper that says, hey, we used to say that this species lived from here to here, but just so everyone knows, we found another one far outside that range, so they probably live everywhere in between, too. And that's useful for conservation and management stuff, because you can't protect something if you don't know it's there. There's a range extension published in the Mediterranean for the Mediterranean Sea for goblin sharks, which are a deep sea weirdo. And they posted this photograph of a, of a goblin shark. And people said, that's not a goblin shark. That's a plastic toy of a goblin shark. And sure enough, these researchers got sent this photograph. They didn't do their due diligence to check. And they said, oh, my God, there's a goblin shark on the shores of, of the Mediterranean Sea. That's never been – they've never been seen within a 1,000 miles of here. That's awesome. We should publish this. But uh, it was a plastic toy, and it was just embarrassing for everyone involved. Just a bad situation. So, you know, don't – the lesson in this is don't publish something without checking if it's true.
1: So they did a DNA analysis and went, oh, my God, it's Tickle Me Elmo? Like, what happened exactly?
0: Yeah, not e- they didn't even get a sample. They were just sent a photograph by someone who they didn't know. They said, uh, and the photo said, I took a picture of it next to this rock so you could have a sense of how big it is, which is great, except they didn't say how big the rock was. Just, just a banana situation all around. I'll tell you, I have wow. people sending me stuff that they think is a novel observation or about shark biology or behavior several times a month. And my reaction is always, that's interesting. What evidence do you have? And they never have any, and we never go any farther. And that is, you know, if one of these things were true, it'd probably be an exciting paper. But if I can't, if they can't prove to me that it's true, we certainly can't prove to the world that it's true.
1: Are there any other examples like that? Because that's just like, that's like, that is is
0: cuckoo banana pants.
1: Because like, that's like UFO scientists taking frisbee photos. Like just, yes.
0: So the, the, the closest analogy I can think of in recent years is the the astronomers who said that they had, like, some amazing footage of some distant galaxy, and it was really a close-up photo of a slice of sausage. That's uh, <laughs> just uh, – this is just there, – there's nothing that compares to this in how obviously nonsensical it is, and also in – it sort of highlights –
1: Oh my. Um,
0: how some of science's checks and balances don't necessarily work the way they should. Although it, it was caught pretty soon after it was published. It should not have been published. The scientists should not have tried to publish it. Peer reviewers should have said that's not right. The editor should have said that's not right. Several guardrails failed here for it to get to this point. And. While it's a really funny story, it's sort of like indicative of some problems, perhaps.
1: The other story like that that's fascinating to me that I've, I've seen you involved in over you know, the last little while the Megalodon conspiracy and how you're covering up the oh, existence of Megalodons.
0: Yes. Yeah, there's Shark Week nonsense again. So if you've ever been at an aquarium or science museum and you've seen those giant shark jaws that you can stand in and get your picture taken with your family, that's Megalodon. They have big teeth actually have a a fragment of one here to give you a sense it would go to about there and they th- this is an extinct fish they were real they did exist they do not exist anymore they've been extinct for millions of years and shark week aired this documentary that did not say it was fictional that falsely claimed megalodon is actually not extinct it's just hiding And you and your family are in very real danger and scientists and the government are lying to you about this. And then at the end, they posted a over the end credits. After two hours of terrifying people, they posted this vaguely worded statement that like some some events in this have been dramatized. Like, no, the whole thing was made up. They had actors pretending to be scientists. They had actors pretending to be the victims of shark bites. They had actors pretending to be government officials. They use CGI video and photoshopped images. Like none of it was real at all. It was completely fictional. And you know, I last year I did a fifty-city book tour, and every t- talk I have audience Q and A, and I can't. I, I there are only a handful of cases where no one asked me about this. People believe it's real ten years later.
1: Wow! I talk orcas all the time and hear about megalodons all the time,
0: and. Yeah. And they were very cool, but they've been extinct for millions of years.
1: Wow. So are there any other myths like that that just kind of, that either Shark Week has created or that have just kind of really stuck around or taken off?
0: Those are some of the more harmful ones, but there's some goofy stuff that Shark Week perpetuates every year, even though it's not useful to them. And I don't get it. And one of those is you may have heard the bull shark is the only species of shark that can enter fresh water. Nonsense. Dozens of species of sharks can enter fresh water. Some do it better than bull sharks. I don't Like, can bull sharks do that? Yes. But they're not the only species that can do it, and they never have been.
1: Cool. Can you talk about the importance of public science engagement? Because I know that's something that is your happy place. Sure.
0: So I love talking to people about sharks. Uh, it was so awesome. Uh, after I wrote my book to go on this tour, I spoke with thousands of people all over the world at museums like the Royal Royal Museum in BC, at, at zoos, at aquariums, at universities, at libraries, at bookstores. I think it's important that, I think scientists work for the public, and it's important that we get out of the ivory tower and engage with people. Not just because I consider it part of my job, these people's tax dollars paid for my research and some of my salary, but because recent events around the world have shown that it matters that your neighbor who is not a scientist understands the value of science and how it works and that when they don't bad things can happen that affect me so i think it's really really important for scientists who want uh, i don't think every scientist should be required to do this some are very very bad at it some despise it but i think scientists who want to do it should be valued and supported more than we currently are
1: so with you very cool And you started off by talking about these new conservation rules. I'd really love to hear about those so that we can kind of talk about what's important with sharks. Sure. That that is real.
0: Yes. So I'll try to do this quickly, though it's legalese and bureaucratic, and uh, I promise it's worth paying attention to the end of three minutes here. So the Convention on International Trade of Endangered Species is an international treaty that governs how... Products from endangered species or species of concern caught in one country can be sold to another country. And there's different appendices of CITES. Appendix 1 is totally illegal to sell this product internationally. You may be, have gone on vacation somewhere and you got like a sea turtle shell curio and it was confiscated back at the airport because you weren't allowed to bring it in, that sort of thing. Appendix 2 is it is legal to trade products internationally. But you, the, the exporting country has to demonstrate that it was caught sustainably. And if it's not, they have to change it so it was exploited sustainably. At the most recent CITES Conference of the Parties, shark species representing about 95% of all the species that are traded in the shark fin trade got added to Appendix 2. I was shocked that this went through. I, I I laughed when it was proposed. I was very wrong and I've never been happier to be wrong. And what this means is basically all of the countries participating in the shark fin trade need to either make their shark fisheries dramatically more sustainable very quickly or stop entirely. And either of those outcomes are very good for sharks. So that is my New Year's resolution for sharks, is I would love to see these uh, sites have the impact that we're hoping it can have for global shark conservation. Now, the shark fin trade is not the biggest or the only threat to sharks, but it's a big one. And this is, uh, if this works, this would be one of the biggest success stories of international ocean conservation ever.
1: Fantastic. Thank you so much for doing this.
0: Thanks for having me. If anyone's interested in learning more about my stuff, you can follow me at Why Sharks Matter on any social media platform you can think of. Um, and the, the book is Why Sharks Matter A Deep Dive with the World's Most Misunderstood Predator.
1: Thanks again for checking out Scanner with Mark and young I'd like to thank all our sponsors and Patreon patrons, including Robert Anderson, Susie Venuta, Simon McNair, Yosef Wast, our friends at Eagle Wing Whale Watching and Wildlife Tours, and Orca Publishing, publishers of my three books on orcas and two books on sharks for younger readers. These are available anywhere you buy books. Follow us on Substack and social media, and please share the show with your friends. Share it with strangers. Share it with everyone. Sharing our work is more essential than ever because social media sites are making it tougher to find Scanna and all Canadian news. Because of that, we're now publishing the Scanna newsletter every two weeks and sharing stories about all things eco and aquatic from Canadian media outlets. If this podcast doesn't work for you, this was Wiser Than Me, and I'm Julia Louis-Dreyfus, our executive producer our always awesome Admiral Rain Banu. a brought to you by our web chief, Katie Brown. Research, courtesy of Captain Courtney Bill. Audio magic and more, thanks to producer Commodore Bug Lewis. Scanas theme song, Scanna, is by Leah Abramson. Ahoy. <coughs>